Hello and welcome to Be The Change, the latest podcast from The Climate Clinic, a brand new series brought to you by the Global Consortium on Climate and Health Education. We now know that healthcare contributes to the climate crisis and makes up more than 4.4% of net global climate emissions. The health sector must be a societal leader in protecting public and planetary health from climate change. In order to do this, it needs to decarbonise rapidly, build resilience and adaptive capacity, as well as fostering health equity and meeting global goals, including universal health coverage. In this series, we'll be talking with experts from around the world in order to shine light on exactly what you can do in your communities today. Today, I'm delighted to be joined in the studio for our first episode by Professor Raymond Van Holder, retired nephrologist and president of the European Kidney Health Alliance, on the exact steps that nephrology needs to take in order to go green. Professor, delighted to have you on the show today. Please tell listeners a little bit about your background and how you got involved in climate action and its links to nephrology. Thank you very much for um, having or giving me the opportunity to express uh, these thoughts. My name is Raymond van Holder. I'm a retired professor of nephrology at Ghent University in Belgium. I worked uh, all my life in clinical nephrology and uh, scientifically my main interests were dialysis, the way dialysis works and then also the biochemistry of uh, chronic kidney disease. After my retirement, I became president of uh, uh, European Kidney Health Alliance, or ECA, that's a Brussels-based NGO that defends the case of kidney patients uh, and of the nephrological community at the level of the European Union. And as the European Union has this uh, Green Deal program, uh, with the intention to make uh, the European Union climate neutral by 2050. I also got interested in the topic of environment and kidney disease. Thank you so much, Professor. That's a fascinating background and we're delighted to have you on today. I wanted to start off by asking you, what are the main routes through which nephrology is affecting the environment? This could be greenhouse gases, wastes, plastics, etc. First of all, I must say that any uh, sick patient um, and any intervention or action at hospital level um, has an uh, environmental impact, and that goes also for kidney patients. But the problem is that if uh, kidney disease is far advanced, uh, we have need of what we call kidney replacement therapy. That means that the own kidneys does, do not function enough to keep the patient alive. And then um, there is either kidney transplantation or dialysis. Uh, transplantation gives a, an or, organ of a donor to the patient, and those are more or less comparable as environmental footprint with uh, any chronic disease patient. But the big problem is certainly dialysis. The blood of the patient is cleansed against water. In fact, massive quantities of water in hemodialysis, which is a machine cleaning the blood. Every patient consumes per year about one Olympic swimming pool of water that is thrown away um, in the gutter. And that water comes from the cleansing process of the blood itself but also um, from uh, the fact that uh, uh, tap water needs to be purified. This gives it a reject of uh, perfectly usable water and even drinkable water that uh, in most units also ends up in the gutter. 
Now, there is a second way of dialyzing, which is peritoneal dialysis, which consumes less energy and also consumes less water. So one could suppose that this is more eco-friendly. But the problem is here, the manufacturing process um, is also a source of uh, environmental problems. And of course, Professor, this is almost a bi-directional harmful exchange, where, of course, nephrology is affecting the environment significantly, but of course, the changing climate is also affecting our kidneys. How exactly is this happening? Well, it's not uh, only about climate, but it's also about environment at large. The first point is that uh, with uh, the increasing quantity and the increasing severity of heat waves, this uh, causes uh, people and especially elderly people to get dehydrated and that in say is uh, damaging the kidneys or um, is enhancing the damage uh, to the kidneys by other products that are toxic to the kidneys for instance herbicides uh, pesticides or uh, also drugs that are affecting the kidneys Um, the second point uh, is uh, however that also pollution environmental pollution Um, is damaging to the kidneys. It is clear that in areas with lots of industry, uh, the incidence of chronic kidney disease is proportionally higher than in rural areas. And finally, there is also um, the other side uh, of uh, of the coin, which are floods, which are becoming more and more frequent. And here, one of the problems is that it is affecting um, um, any Uh, intervention in hospitals and also uh, hemodialysis, especially uh, we have seen this, for instance, with Hurricane Katrina, that patients uh, could not be dialyzed anymore because of the flooding of their units. And that makes that these patients need to displace to other units and that causes complications, hospitalizations, etc. Professor, I wanted to ask you, where do the bulk of kidney care-related emissions come from? I, I think we need to concentrate essentially on dialysis. This uh, comes from two sources. First of all, the manufacturing of uh, the material. That means that filters and also the tubings that are used for dialysis are in plastic. Um, these need to be manufactured. That causes consumption of water and also consumption of energy. We should also consider that for these plastics, uh, carbon uh, is uh, needed. Um, carbon that then ends up as waste, uh, quite, or the, po- the polymers are ending up as waste if they are not recycled. They often are burned, so that is increasing further CO2 uh, production. Now, the treatment itself... Uh, is in its turn um, unecologic in first instance, as explained, mainly hemodialysis, not only because of uh, the CO2 production, but also because of the water consumption. But uh, that water needs to be heated and needs to be pumped through the system. Um, the blood of the patients is pumped through the system, all that consumes energy. So that is a cause of CO2 production. And on top of that, all that plastic goes into waste, either um, dangerous waste sometimes, which has to be handled in a specific way, or biological waste because it has been in contact with blood of the patients. 
which also needs to be handled in a specific way. And in, in this way, um, this process is uh, hugely un, uh, environmental friendly. Professor, for all the listeners who are tuned into this podcast, are you able to share some examples of kidney care facilities or units that have been successful in minimising their impact on the environment? There is actually no registration system uh, on how well or how badly um, this uh, problem is dealt with. The only thing that I know is that the Nurses Association, that is the European Dialysis and Transplant Nurses Association, inquired about the activities to make their unit uh, more environment friendly and that the majority responded negatively or with a minimal number uh, of measures. Environmental friendly uh, kidney care is not a, a very popular topic at nephrology congresses. We hope that this is changing, which is uh, decreasing the chances of exchanging ideas about this. Um, but among units I know, um, I know that the number of measures have been taken in a dialysis unit in Leipzig in Germany. It's interesting because that uh, unit is belonging to the Curatorium für Hemodialyse, um, that is a large non-for-profit provider group. Um, and in this way, the ideas of uh, that uh, nephrologist, more specifically Dr. Joachim Beige, might be uh, dispersed through this large network. Um, also knowing that uh, at the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands, um, they are now developing green dialysis unit. They are still working and studying on it. Finally, on a national level, I know that in the United Kingdom, um, but also in France, uh, a number of systematic measures have been taken to uh, cause a more environmental friendly attitude. But uh, the main point here is that uh, obviously we do not know very much and uh, not very much is happening. And that is something that uh, needs to be changed. So, Professor, what are the next steps for nephrology to decarbonize their direct emissions, their supply chain pathways and wider society? Well, let's let's beginning uh, or, or let's start with the with the dialysis process and more exactly the hemodialysis process and peritoneal dialysis as well. So, and again, making this dichotomy between industrial manufacturing and at the provider side for manufacturing, it would be good if they are producing less energy consuming machines, make simpler and longer lasting machines because most machines are breaking down after some time and then uh, are not recycled, which is perhaps an even larger or bigger problem in emerging countries where they break down more easily because technology is not made for uh, tropical countries, etc. And on the other hand, the possibility to make repairs is uh, less uh, preponderant. And finally, uh, there is there are certainly many ways of on rationing uh, the manufacturing process. Many things probably are going on in industry, but if you talk to industry people, they often do not know themselves exactly what is happening. Uh, so I think here also uh, it would be very good that they make a kind of uh, 
of uh, inventory of what they are doing uh, and then uh, compare to each other uh, and try to come to a consensus to move move forward. Of course, that's not so easy because companies uh, try to preserve their autonomy. um, But uh, as a community, I think we have a responsibility towards them to make clear that uh, this is the only way to go. Now, for the provider side, there are also many options, of course. First of all, units can use and install infrastructure for consuming or producing solar energy and uh, windmill energy. Uh, at least here in Belgium, there are very few dialysis units with, uh, which have these opportunities, although mostly they have flat roofs, so they have room enough to uh, make this up. I think that with the energy crisis, uh, maybe they are more convinced to to start investing in this. One can reduce dialysis, uh, dialysate flows and dialyzer flows. I think that imposes virtually no risk. One has to take into account, of course, each individual patient. But in efficiency of dialysis, reducing that flow by something like 20, 25% will reduce the adequacy of dialysis, perhaps by 5 to 10% for some uremic toxins, but most of the toxins removal will be even less affected. And this can always be compensated by dialyzing a little bit longer. If you reduce the flows, uh, of course, uh, you have need to heat less the water and the pumps are consuming less energy. There is the option of uh, using machines that uh, are consuming less water. Um, There are some uh, machines like that. Um, One of the problems is that to compensate for this, one has to perform quite often uh, daily dialysis. So that makes that this water consumption in say is a good thing. But on the other hand, dialyzing twice um, every uh, day instead of every other day is is very good for the patient, but not necessarily for uh, the energy consumption. Uh, And there are also machines uh, in preparation um, so under development, actually, that uh, are recirculating dialysate. That means that by using sorbents, you can reduce the dialysate volume to, to a few liters, something like eight or 10 liters. So that decreases, again, water consumption. And on the other hand, uh, the need for heating because it's heated automatically uh, by itself. Uh, the problem uh, here is that uh, for the sorbents, uh, there is also energy needed to make them and uh, there's water needed. Um, and we don't know exactly what the balance is. Probably it's still in favor of those um, recirculating uh, systems, but uh, it's uh, very unclear if you talk to people who are producing sorbents um, what uh, this process really is about. Uh, And then, of course, um, one can also change uh, simple things in the dialysis unit, um, make the heating by consuming heat pumps, um, lowering the the room temperature in the unit. And um, as a matter of fact, also home dialysis is a probably better solution because, of course, you don't need this huge systematic climatization of an, an all, whole unit and uh, can just simply uh, work with the, the heating system that you're using within a house or the cooling system 
Um, and that, to my opinion, uh, if you sum it up, will consume less energy than what is done in uh, units. Those are great points, Professor. Thank you for sharing them. We've talked about existing uh, nephrology-related care, but how much of this will be assisted by preventative medicine and pre- you know preventing our patients from reaching the state of requiring hemodialysis, especially in a in a you know a global climate where conditions such as chronic kidney disease are on the rise. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's uh, perfectly true. Of course, the best way to solve a problem is to make that the problem doesn't occur. Prevention goes in two different ways. There is primary prevention and secondary prevention. Primary prevention is about lifestyle. We also have the, the ser- uh, secondary prevention that is preventing the, the progression of chronic kidney disease. Um, there we have been in a kind of stagnating situation for at least uh, 30, 40 years after the introduction of, uh, of uh, uh, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system inhibitors. That was a, a preventative measure, but it's only with the advent of novel antidiabetics like SGLT2 inhibitors that we have an, a novel product, a little bit by coincidence, actually, uh, that uh, that is also refraining the progression of kidney disease. But certainly there are big gaps there. Um, if, if you compare this disease by with what happens, for instance, in cancer or diabetes, where many more uh, drugs uh, are available, means that probably there are several other part, pathways that could be inhibited to decrease progression, for instance, uh, pathways leading to fibrosis, uh, senescence uh, of uh, cells. And um, uh, finally, um, we have a large deal of kidney disease are, in fact, rare kidney disease with specific uh, mechanisms um, like uh, IgA nephropathy, etc., where we are missing for the time being also specific therapeutic measures that are slowing down the progression of the disease. So prevention is certainly a way to go. Not enough exploited in uh, nephrology, and that is just simply due by the lack of awareness of the general public and of the um, policy makers. But we should not forget that if we have to go for kidney replacement therapy, transplantation is also a much more interesting uh, ecologic option than um, uh, dialysis. And here also things can be done because uh, certainly um, also transplantation is underexploited. Uh, there are huge differences among European countries in the rate of transplantation measures, which are often in the policy area that could be taken and that have not yet been taken. Thank you very much, Professor Raymond Van Holder, for joining us today in the studio to discuss what nephrology and kidney care needs to do in order to go green. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and can take away some action points for how your communities and units can get started on this process. Thank you very much for tuning in. Please do check out our other podcast streams, Be The Expert and Code Red and Code Green, all of which you can find on our Spotify and iTunes pages. We look forward to seeing you again in the Be The Change studio next week.